I'm staying away from you. Sort of. <coughs> you can move if you want. That's okay. He didn't want to play basketball anyhow. <laughs> yes. Huh. Oh. Huh. No. Just yeah. Yeah, we will soon. Since I feel better. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <coughs> okay, I'll figure out. There might be that I didn't. There's some <coughs> strange thing where you have to assign a role twice, which I don't quite understand. Um, and it may be, I think Laura figured that out, and it may be that I didn't do that for you, even though I twice tried to assign you a role. Um, it also happened to my TA in a different class. He couldn't get on the class. Um, yeah, which is not a good thing. If the, just email me to remind me, and if I can't um, get it to work, uh, we mail the lot to people. I'll also try to um, whatever assignment I do for next week, um, which is more done. Um, I'll just I'll CC it to you, as well as putting it on the latte. All right, let us see. Um, Grace, Han, Daniel, Abby, um, Rachel, Taylor, um, Jamie. Rhoda, Justy, Zach, Nikki. Woohoo! Ain't that swell? Okay. Um, so, have you thought at all about the idea of um, these poems being in dialogue with each other? Which is where we um, ended class on Tuesday. Okay, no. <laughs> I guess the answer to that is no. <laughs> that was interesting, you said to yourselves. Maybe. Interesting. Um, but uh, then you had other things to think about. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that what we were discussing was particularly the contradiction between your contradiction, but the juxtaposition of the ecstasy and love's alchemy. Uh -huh. And so that would be ostensibly the dialogue between the poetic love-struck Don who wants the the what's that impossible line uh, inter in animation of the soul nice. to be a real tangible happening whereas the love's alchemy done you know is, is the one who, who, who thinks that it's all just you know meat puppets and cynicism but I, I mean Throughout the songs and sonnets, I, I never found a lot of... There aren't a lot that I feel go that strongly in either direction. Uh -huh. I feel like the dialogue is less between two ends of philosophizing about love and more about just different views on different experiences. Mm -hmm. So is my take on it. Jimmy, did you want to say something? No. You, had, you had the look of someone who wanted to say something, but... Okay. Um... Um, there obviously there has to be some way um, and this is part of what we were saying about um, Dunn's quickness to um, see possibilities everywhere 
Um, there has to be some way, it has to matter, that the same figure can, even if these poems are contradicting, um, have contradictory stances to each other. Um, it has to matter that Dunn can ventriloquize those contradictory stances. That is, that he can say things that feel uncompromising, inflexibly um, bitter, let's say, in Love's Alchemy, and then say the opposite sort of thing in The Ecstasy. Um, you know the movie The Agony and the Ecstasy? So maybe for Dunn it would I think be... I read the book a while ago. Yeah, so it's about uh, Michelangelo. So maybe for Dunn it would be The Alchemy and the Ecstasy. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, I'm a little ill, as you can tell. <laughs> um, um, my son would say that's really not an ill joke. Um, <laughs> um, so the fact that he can take, and that he can also expect his readership to take, um, all those different points of view, um, is itself significant. Um, and in a way, you could ask yourself, so what kind of figure... You, you, can, you can go meta. That is, you can say what you have here are a whole lot of very vivid um, perspectives on love, on women, on sex, on, um, on um, fidelity, um, on desire, and so on. You have a whole lot of very vivid perspectives on this, and then you have someone who is able somehow to take all these perspectives, now at one point, now at another, um, what you can ask yourself, and this would be a um, perennial question to ask about people who are really good at dramatizing different points of view, is so which points of view that such a writer is dramatizing, um, what kind <coughs> of figure as dramatized by such a writer is most likely <coughs> to be able to do the same thing? Um, in other words, the, the, the typical and famous way to talk about this is to say of Hamlet, um, that Hamlet is the figure in Shakespeare who would be most likely to write everything Shakespeare wrote. Um, that if you take a completely opposite figure, you know, even from Hamlet, take Polonius, who's, you know, to thine own self be true. And, um, uh, for um, brevity is the soul of wit, and to be brief, what is it? Um, and then he's the opposite of brief. Um, Polonius, um, under the most extraordinary pressure imaginable, couldn't have written very much of Shakespeare. Um, couldn't have understood very much of Shakespeare, if we now talk about the reader's experience from these different perspectives, of these different perspectives, um, whereas Hamlet could. And um, you, can, you can put figures in Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare is the gold standard for this question. Um, but you can put figures in Shakespeare on a continuum, on a spectrum, of um, those who are less and le least likely um, to get what Shakespeare is doing to those who are most likely to get what Shakespeare is doing. You can put his characters on that spectrum. Um, and, um, you know, part of the interesting thing is probably the villains would be um, near the midpoint or would be in the middle 50% of that spectrum, would be under the fat part of the bell curve. They're villains, they're good villains because they understand others, um, but they don't succeed entirely. Um, that doesn't mean they don't get what they want, 
but they don't get the sense of the world that um, constitutes artistic and literary success um, because they don't quite have the ability to go all the way um, to a Hamlet-like or an Edgar-like or a Juliet-like um, or a Rosalind-like uh, sense uh, or Paulina-like, I'll stop, um, sense of um, all possibilities. Um, so there are no possibilities, some possibilities, all possibilities. And um, so the question about Dunn would be, um, if you think of it this way, what you have are a lot of highly dramatized, conflicting points of view. Um, dramatized, I was suggesting, to the extent that you can see these poems in dramatic dialogue with each other, as we did with Love's Alchemy and The Ecstasy. Um, and if you do that, a question you could ask is, um, who is, just to take those two poems, would the writer of, or the speaker of The Ecstasy, be able to understand the bitterness and the perspective and the arguments made by the speaker of Love's Alchemy? Um, would, and the answer might be that they both could, but would the speaker um, of Love's Alchemy be able to understand what the speaker of The Ecstasy is saying? Um, which one, in a sense, comprehends the other? Comprehends both figuratively, that is, understands, but also the literal meaning of comprehend, which is, say, includes. Um, you know, when you say that the state of Massachusetts comprehends the Berkshire Mountains and Cape Cod and the city of Boston and so on. Um, so, um, would the speaker of, is the truth somehow that the kind of person who could um, gin up the ecstasy, the kind of person who could say what he says in Love's Alchemy, but not vice versa? Or is it that the kind of person who can write the ecstasy already knows the whole Love's Alchemy bit, but also knows more than that? So do you see the do you see the what the question is? Yeah. Well, that. Oh, sorry. Um, well, then, I mean, it sounds like what you're asking is which has more perspective and more wisdom. If it's saying, could one comprehend the other, but not like, is it they could both comprehend each other, or could only one having experience more? Like, I mean, going back to your Shakespeare metaphor, people will. I think falsely to a degree say oh well they follow you know first Shakespeare was in love and he wrote his comedies and then he lost his son and then he wrote the tragedies and then he had perspective on life and he wrote the romances yeah so like is, is that sort of the question and well yeah it could be temporal um and yeah so that's a way of asking okay. it. um yeah yeah I don't I don't know if I I might have misunderstood you but do you mean like one speaker has more perspective than another because I don't think it's a Matter, I think it's a matter of like where they think each other is coming from. Because I think the speaker in Love's Alchemy would be like the speaker in The Ecstasy. It's like, oh, that's just uh, like biological almost justification for mm -hmm. sex. Yeah. The speaker in The Ecstasy would be like, no, you're just cynical. So yeah. if one of them doesn't have more perspective, they have different views on what the other one thinks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but you could still maybe ask a way of asking if you want to dramatize this. And maybe it's the wrong question to ask, which I think. Um, your, your way of seeing them makes sense, but, but is that there's someone who's written both those poems. And um, so obviously such a person can exist. Uh, do we get closer to that person <coughs> reading The Ecstasy or reading Love's Alchemy? Mm -hmm. um, now it may be that they're just well 
weighed and well-balanced. You know, you could ask the same question. This is true, let's say, of certain kinds of fantasy fiction, that um, when you have good versus evil in fantasy, um, the implicit claim is that the um, wisest good guy understands evil, you know, um, uh, the dark side of the force, you must avoid it, um, um, better than the evil figures understand the good guys, so that um, you know, Yoda is wiser, more competent, better in his understanding of, um, of the Sith Lords and of, of um, the evil figures in the Star Wars story than even such a figure as Darth Vader or Anakin become Darth Vader is in understanding the good guys. Um, or understanding the champion of the good philosophy versus the champion of the evil philosophy. Or in Harry Potter, um, does Dumbledore get Voldemort better than Voldemort gets Dumbledore? Or not? Or does Voldemort get Dumbledore better than Dumbledore gets Voldemort? Yeah, but that's the point. That, and so that one way that a certain kind of fantasy drama or fantasy fiction is always written is that um, the evil figure seems to know everything, the white witch, um, Voldemort, whatever, um, or almost everything. You know, they get all the things the good guys are going to try to do and see the weaknesses of what the good guys are going to try to do. But then it turns out that the good guys actually get a lot more than they've revealed, that Aslan really knows that the deal that he makes, spoiler alert, that the deal that he makes with the White Witch <coughs> is going to um, be one in which she doesn't know about the oldest magic. And the oldest magic trumps the old magic that she's talking about. Right? You remember all this from, from The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe? Um, that Voldemort thinks, you know, the various, the, the, all the Death Eaters put into the Ministry of Magic and so on, um, that Dumbledore is going to um, be defeated not knowing that Dumbledore has actually thought about this all more deeply than we knew that he thought about it. And so that's a, you know, if you ever write fantasy fiction, that's a very typical um, trajectory and dramatic changeover, is that the, what makes you good is partly that you're kind and inoffensive and don't hurt your enemies, and that seems to give your enemies an advantage because they will hurt the good guys, but then it turns out that the kind and inoffensive people, Gandalf and Dumbledore and whatever, actually um, are more in command of the situation than those who think they're more in command of the situation than them. So, you know, this is, this is a very standard um, uh, discovery in narrative. It's a very standard experience of narrative is our finding out that someone who we thought um, was not quite um, uh, as good at the game as the bad guys turns out, in fact, to be better at it. Yeah. Oh, I do. Okay. Yeah. I think, it, well, I think of all that, that assumption only really works if good triumphs over evil. Yeah. Because then you can say, well, look at the foresight that this, this wise character had. And second of all, if the, the point of, you know, the point of contention in all those is, is essentially always war. There's the, the physical struggle of good versus evil, whereas with Dunn, 
it's love, which is a lot more, you know, blurry and abstract. So I think that in order to examine which which Dunn is wiser, I, I don't think since there is no conclusive. I mean, I guess you could look at Dunn's life and say, well, you know, he married, he had kids, he was in love, so that that Dunn would win out. I think, but I think it would be more prudent to sort of like. I, I think like you'd need a mediator between those two extremes. You'd need like the Dunn who wrote "Go and Catch a Falling Star" yeah. to sort of read between the lines, perhaps. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Yeah, Abby. Um, I haven't really thought Sorry. this all the way through, but um, I think both with like these good versus evil things and Dunn, like um, they they both have to be. Well, maybe not true, but but both of them have to be there in order for like either of them to mean something because if they're not rejecting each other then like then they aren't saying anything. Uh-huh. So I don't know what that means. No, I think you're right that they certainly structurally, you know, I mean partly what we're talking about is just um how structures of opposition in um um drama- in dramatic conflict. So that's the most basic thing that will occur in in um, any literature that tells a story. And there are, you know, possibly implicit stories here. Possibly. Um, so the structure of opposition, you could say, in everything that we're looking at, including Dunn, is love versus selfishness. Um, and, you know, Dumbledore shows love, Voldemort shows selfishness. Gandalf shows love, um, whoever shows selfishness. Yeah, Sauron. Yeah. Um, but not only Sauron, but Sauron, yeah. Um, um, and the question is does the selfish character say yeah I get love I understand what that feeling is um, because I was Anakin but I also get that um, the selfish figure who understands love will be able to destroy those who don't understand selfishness Um, and it's as simple as that and the other possibility is, no, I get selfishness, but I've also, you know, transcended my own selfishness and learned love. <coughs> and the figure who's, who understands selfishness and can transcend it will defeat and convert those who are selfish out of love. Yeah. I know, I, I kind of thought this was what she was talking about. I think the idea is, like, especially with the Dunn poems, when you look at them in print, like, all of them intermittent, like, intertextual conversations, it's like, he's saying there's multiple dynamics of love and not each one is true and it's like the good character like the Gandalf type character would be like oh I acknowledge that there's all these dynamics of love and they're all true but I'm going to pick the one that's good and I think well the idea in the fantasy where the good wins but the evil character says no this is actually what love is and they're in an illusion but the good character acknowledges that they're all different dynamics of the same thing uh huh okay yeah so then who would be a good speaker who would be close to Dunn in, or maybe you don't say there I is think, one, just I think that it's Dunn himself. I think it would be one that, like, would pick the view of the ecstasy but acknowledges that the view in Love's Alchemy is not an illusion, but uh-huh. it can still have. Okay, yeah, great. Um, yeah, I'm reminded of what you were getting to with, like, uh, which one is truer or, because I think that complicates it and is a slightly different because I don't think it's a question of truth, it's a question of preference, sort of. Uh-huh. Um, like, Nietzsche has, he writes about 
Well, he writes about a lot of things. But, <laughs> but one of his many, many aphorisms or whatever is, it's mere prejudice to value truth more than appearances. Yeah. So I think that applies here. Okay. In so, that. But then that would be what? So, so the Nietzschean done is the done of love's alchemy, right? To some extent. That is the, um, um, you know, the idea of... Uh, Goodness is just weakness and um, slave morality and ressentiment, which is Nietzsche's view. Um, and so slave morality would belong to uh, dumb speakers who are saying, oh, it's so wonderful, we love each other, that's great. Um, and the Nietzschean done would be something like the done uh, loves alchemy. Um, someone who is just bitter about things, um, although there's also affirmation in Nietzsche. So it makes it harder. But, um, you know, it may be that there isn't a character who stands for all those different perspectives within these songs and sonnets. Um, but it seems to me that um, in a poem like Woman's Constancy or even The Indifferent, um, or especially in a poem like um, The Sun Rising, um, He's showing himself able to take a completely different perspective, one that <coughs> you couldn't... It's really hard to imagine that the person who believes what he says in Love's Alchemy could write um, The Sun Rising. Um, but um, it's, is it hard to believe that the person who could write this, The Sun Rising um, who could believe the sun rising um, could write Love's Alchemy. I mean, there's the misogyny, for one thing, right? Um, that is that, how can someone as misogynistic as the person, as the speaker of Love's Alchemy, write um, the sun rising? Um, whereas the speaker of the sun rising might be able to say, you know, that's what, it's like when married men woo. You know, there are bad guys. Um, there are guys who um, do, who prefer business and um, have contempt for women, and you know, I really hope you're not one of those. Um, and so she might be able to um, come up with um, a speaker like the speaker, you know, the kind of people who say, some that have deeper digged love's mind than I say where eccentric happiness doth lie. I really hope you're, you're not that kind of person. Um, well, it's just, it's a question, but um, one worth asking who, as I say, who comprehends whom. Let's look, I want us to look at a validation for bidding morning, but um, just to talk about metaphor, let's look to as Mistress Going to Bed, um, a dirtyish poem, um, page 12. So he is um, explaining what he's encouraging that they should do. Uh, page 12. Oh, you, I yeah. Have a stupid different edition. Yeah. Which begins, elegy is it? Elegy 2. It begins, uh, come, madam, not, come. Not mine, so find it. Sorry. <clears throat> 
please go ahead. I'll find it. All right. Uh, just so you know, <coughs> our slang use of the word come was not yet available in English. Um, that is, done did not mean it. Die, <coughs> yes, <coughs> that meant to have sex. Uh, that meant to come. Um, but to come did not mean um, what we might mean by it now. Um, so come, madam, come, all rest. My powers defy. Sorry? That would be a bit heavy-handed. Yes, it would. <laughs> it would. Um, there's a he very heavy-handed reading of I mean, Cleopatra where this is how I found out about this because I just thought if this is true, it's really unfortunate. <laughs> so you know turtle, whenever Shakespeare uses the word turtle, um, it's very unfortunate whenever he uses the word turtle <coughs> because we think of turtles. Um, <laughs> But the word turtle didn't mean tortoise or a tortoise-like animal till I believe, the 18th century. And turtle just meant dove. So it's really, really hard to read about turtles in Shakespeare and know that he means dove. And even if we know that he means dove, we're still thinking turtle. <laughs> Mitch McConnell. Um, yeah, so there are, there are things you just can't get out of your mind. Um, and um, there's a line in Antony and Cleopatra where Cleopatra, uh, Antony is dead and Cleopatra's about to kill herself and she says, husband I come and um, a very famous critic said, you know um, so her death for her is orgasm uh, and she's saying you know, look at me, I'm coming as I die and as I apply the asp to my body and so I actually looked it up and it doesn't <laughs> and I'm glad that it doesn't because you wouldn't want her saying that. Um, it's just too crude or heavy handed as you put it um, for her to be saying that um, so come madam come all rest my powers defy paraphrase uh, I can't sleep um, yeah which is the subject and which is the direct object of all rest my powers defy Yeah, my powers are defying any rest. Um, that is, my potency, and there it does mean potency, my powers defy the possibility of rest. Until I labor, I in labor lie. So labor how? Yeah, and until then, it's, he feels like he's lying in labor, partly like a woman, um, laboring to give birth, but also just, you know, this is really frustrating and hard. <laughs> And um, until I do some work, I feel like I'm doing work. Um, the foe, off times, having the foe in sight is tired with standing, though they never fight. Um, so you just want to get on with it, um, have the battle begin. Uh, what's the joke in the word standing? <laughs> Sorry, yes. Yeah, there's, uh, let me put it this way. There is a joke in the word standing. Um, <laughs> Off with that girdle, like heaven's zone glistering, but a far fairer world encompassing. So you're wearing this beautiful, here he doesn't mean girdle as in Playtex, um, <laughs> but he means something that, um, a piece of clothing that goes around your waist. Um, so it's beautiful what you're wearing. It's uh, glistering like heaven's zone, like the Milky Way, but a far fairer world encompassing. That is, um, there's something much more beautiful than the Milky Way. And here again, there's astronomy behind this. Just so you know, Dunn is always thinking about astronomy. He's really interested in it. So there's another world that is like beneath 
the stars that we can see in the girdle that is glistering or glimmering like the Milky Way. Upon that spangled breastplate, which you wear, that the eyes of busy fools may be stopped there. Um, excuse me, unpinned that spangled breastplate, which you wear, that the eyes of busy fools may be stopped there. Um, unlace yourself, for that harmonious chime tells me from you that now tis your bed time. Um, so the sound of your unlacing yourself, the sound of the clock tells me that it's time for you to go to bed. Off with that happy busk, which I envy, that still can be and still can stand so nigh. So um, there you are wearing these clothes that get to be so close to your body, um, making me envy them. Um, your gown going off such beauteous state reveals as when from flowery meads the hill's shadow steals. So <clears throat> when you take off your gown, it's like a shadow. Um, um, when the sun comes up, departing from a meadow, off with your wiry coronet and show the hairy diadem which on you doth grow. Um, so he's actually talking about eyebrows. Um, diadem. Diadem, yeah. But if you, you may be forgiven to think that he wasn't. Um, and he may want you to think that he wasn't. Off with those shoes and then safely tread in this love's hallowed temple, this soft bed. In such white robes, heaven's angels used to be received by men. Thou, angel, bringst with thee a heaven like Muhammad's paradise. And though ill spirits walk in white, we easily know by this these angels from an evil sprite, they set our hairs, that is evil sprites, evil angels, um, they set our hairs, but these are flesh upright. So what do evil spirits do? Give us goosebumps? Yeah, they make our hair stand on end. But we know that an angel is actually a good spirit, not an evil spirit, we men, if it's not our hairs that stand on end, but... Yes. <laughs> yes. So that's how I know you're a good spirit. <laughs> License my roving hands. So he's asking for consent, notice. License my roving hands and let them go behind, before, above, between, below. Um, so you can figure out where his hands are going, right? Behind her, in front of her, presumably her belly, above, maybe her face, between, what? <laughs> Below. Oh, my America, my newfound land. Um, where he actually means Newfoundland. Um, oh, my America, my newfound land. My kingdom, safeliest, when with one man manned. So it's the same use of man pretty much as in... Yeah, guard. So um, when there's only one guard, my kingdom is safest. 
and what would it mean to be manned by one man? Remember ends love in this? You weren't here on Tuesday, right? Yeah, so ends love in this, he says in the alchemy, that my man can be as happy as I can if he can endure the short scorn of a bridegroom's play. <coughs> so there my man means... Servant or... Penis. Yes. Yeah. Um, so my Newfoundland, my America, which I have discovered, um, like Columbus, is safeliest um, guarded when one man mans it. My mine of precious stones. So what's that echoing with? My mine of precious stones, yeah? Yes. What's the line? Do you remember? Lovers digging. Lovers mine. Right. Those that have deeper dug loves mine than I. So this is actually, um, he's digging it pretty deep and he's happy about it. My mine of precious stones, my empery, my empire. How blessed am I in this discovering thee? So I'm blessed in that I'm discovering you the way Columbus discovered America. But what else, what else does discover mean? To uncover. To uncover, yeah. To discover. Um, to take your clothes off. To enter in these bonds is to be free. Then where my hand is set, my seal shall be. So what's the metaphor there? An imperial seal. Imperial seal after you have... Yeah, and signed it. So you sign it. That's setting your hand to something. And then you seal it. And then you're done. Um, but what does he mean? Conquering? Well, where my hand is set, where do you think he's setting his hand? This being done and all? Sorry? On her vagina. <laughs> and then, you know, a seal is done with hot wax. Okay. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> Compared to Rochester, this is nothing. A common fucking post throughout the town. <laughs> That's how Rochester describes his own penis. <laughs> Um, he was uh, 60 years later. Um, sorry? Yes, they did. They stopped using it in the 19th century. Um, you know, Philip Larkin has a great poem um, that begins, Sexual intercourse began in 1963. Um, and then he says, which was a little bit late for me um, <laughs> because he was born in like 1930. Um, so he didn't get to have the youth um, experience. Um, but sexual intercourse began in 1963, which was a little bit late for me between the end of the Chatterley Ban and the Beatles' first LP. That's how the poem begins. And it basically, you know, that until then no one had sex. And we really don't know how humanity reproduced. But it actually turns out they did have sex. And if you go to pre Victorian times, you can find unbelievably dirty poems especially if you look at the poems of uh, Rochester, um, who is unbelievably dirty. His, <laughs> his poem, The Imperfect Enjoyment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the, your, 
The Imperfect Enjoyment is the kind of poem you will read to your friends on a weekend because you won't be able to believe it. Um, wouldn't you say, huh? Yeah, it's yeah. up there. It's up there, yes. Um, done, is, done is not a patch on Rochester. Um, so, but, yeah, to enter in these bonds is to be free. Then, where my hand is set, my seal shall be. So it's, to enter in these bonds means to make a legal contract, um, but it also means to enter in this place where I am held tight. Um, and that's where he's setting his hand, and soon where he will set his seal. Um, full nakedness, all joys are due to thee. As souls unbodied, bodies unclothed must be to taste whole joys. Um, so what poem does that remind you of? Souls unbodied? The ecstasy. Yeah. So what he's saying is, um, here notice that you have that kind of um, stutter step of metaphor. So um, souls get rid of their bodies the way bodies get rid of their clothes. So the body is the soul's clothes, but he's reversing it here and saying clothes are like the body's clothes um, or clothes are like the body's body and the body is like the soul. And so it's a good thing to get naked um, because it's really going straight for the soul. That's what nakedness means, is soulfulness. As souls unbodied, bodies unclothed must be to taste whole joys, that is to get everything. Gems, which you women use, are like Atlanta's balls. No. Gems, which you women use, are like Atlanta's balls, cast in men's views, that when a fool's eye lighteth on a gem, his earthly soul may covet theirs, not them. So what do people know the story of Atalanta? Yeah. I just know they were like golden balls that were used to distract. Runners. Yeah. So you would, um, basically people would race her because anyone who defeated her would be able to marry her. Um, but um, she would throw balls, um, golden balls around so that the runners would stop to pick them up and they never won. Um, so they're, distract, they're, they're meant to distract from what's really important, and that's what jewels are. They are like Atalanta's balls, cast in men's views, that when a fool's eye lighteth on a gem, his earthly soul may covet theirs, that is, the gems, what belongs to them, not them. Like pictures, or like books, gay coverings made for laymen, are all women <coughs> thus arrayed. Um, so women are like um, beautiful pictures or, um, or framed like beautiful pictures or like a book with a beautiful cover. Um, for laymen, that is for those who can't read. Um, that's what layman means at the time, someone who is illiterate. Um, uh, thus women are arrayed. Themselves, though, they're not the covers, themselves are mystic books, which only we whom their imputed grace will dignify, must see revealed. So um, because they're so wonderful, and um, those whom they give their grace to, imputed grace is, is a theological term. Anyone know what it means? Do you have a note on it? In Protestant theology, the bestowal of divine grace so as to direct men to salvation. Yeah. So basically... Um, 
that's God saving us when we couldn't save ourselves, is to impute Jesus' grace onto us, um, to give it to us and um, so that we can then believe and find salvation. So women are doing that. Um, those who are dignified by their imputed grace get to see what's in the book. Then, since I may know as liberally as to a midwife, show thyself. So since I'm allowed to know because of the imputed grace that I get from you, um, show me as liberally as to a midwife, which means... Open your all life. Of it. <laughs> yes, all also of it. like shamelessly. Yeah, well, not shamelessly, but completely, liberally. Um, go for it. Um, cast all. Yea, this white linen, hence, take off the white linen that you were wearing that makes you angelic. Here is no penance. Now, what line do you have there, Justy? There is no penance. And then? Much less innocence. Okay, some people have, there is no penance due to innocence. <coughs> but, um, and what's your note on that? It's a, it's a crux, that line people are never sure there of. There much less, uh, there, due to, or here, much less penance, innocence, both represented by white. Okay. <laughs> That's really doesn't help right now. It really doesn't. Um, yeah, here. Here is no penance, much less innocence. Some manuscripts in the first printed text read more kindly. There is no penance due to innocence. Um, but I think um, what, what um, Carrie thinks is that it's a little bit mean because she's not in, he's saying she's not innocent. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's not that. I think the idea of innocence isn't the issue here. <clears throat> that is, it's neither penance nor innocence. Um, and so it would mean pretty much the same thing as there is no penance due to innocence. Um, that is, you don't have to worry about it. It's fine. Um, there is no penance due to innocence, or here is no penance much less innocence. It's just not an issue. Um, and then the last two lines, to teach thee I am naked first, why then what needs thou have more covering than a man? So, paraphrase that. Uh, here I'm demonstrating, and you know, what more clothing do you need than me? Okay, yeah, Taylor? Also, I think it seems it's like referring to, I think Adam and Eve, how a woman comes from a man, so he's like, if I'm a man and I'm naked, then you're a woman who came from you, you should be naked as well. Okay, this is interesting. Um, there's another possible meaning. I'll be on top of you, all of you are covered? Yes. Why do you need to be covered by anything other than a man? Do you see that meaning? Um, to teach the eye make it first, why then what needs to have more covering than a man? You don't need your gown, you don't need a blanket. All you have to do is um, pull me on top of you. <laughs> And then you'll be covered, and that'll be fine. <laughs> now, it's inter I th to me, it's interesting that you guys got the more innocent version first. That is, I'm naked, why should you have clothes on? I actually thought that that one first. Yeah, it is. Yeah, okay. It's also slightly using like, the theology in like, a blasphemous way. Uh huh. So, like, oh. Like, sort of saying, like, the shame Adam and Eve felt by covering themselves. Like, that was stupid. Like, what's the, you know? Um, <laughs> so that's what I, that's what, I don't know. I guess it's not an innocent reading, but just a more, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I, it's interesting. My experience over the years is that um, most people, most, but obviously not the majority and in this class of minority, um, see the dirty version first. Uh, why do you need to be covered by anything other than a man? And then they laugh when they see actually there's a cleaner version, um, which is why do you have to be any more clothed than I am? Um, and I think um, if you have if you if you get it in that um, order, then there's something really neat about laughing not at a dirty joke but at a clean joke yeah. that you thought was a dirty joke, but it turns out to be a clean joke or a cleaner. Good. He does that a lot. Yeah. You know, according to the BBC, what the world's favorite joke in English is? What's brown and sticky? A stick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Why? Sticky? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> because it turns out to be stick-like. Yeah. What's brown and like a stick? A stick. Um, so you think it's something yucky and gross, and then it turns out, no, it's just a stick. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think also the grammar leaves, you know, like, it leaves all those interpretations open. And it also made me think of, like, you know how there's often the idea that men are visually stimulated, therefore women should be dressed modestly. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so if he's saying, if he's saying, well, then I'm naked, and so there's no modesty here, then if you're dressed only out of modesty, and then, then like, you know, it's just right exactly um, yeah so they're all there um, and so do you have but the, then the question is and one reason that there, there are a couple of reasons I, reasons I want us to look at this poem um, one is that you can ask um, you can notice that he's playing games with tenor and vehicle again that is which is the tenor and which is the vehicle which is the metaphorical way of putting it and which is the literal way. So what other covering, um, what more covering needs you than a man? What needs thou have more covering than a man? Um, first you take that literally. Um, maybe. Um, that is, why do you have to be covered by anything <coughs> other than a man? Um, and then you may see, oh no, there's a metaphorical version. Um, why do you have to be um, wearing any covering more than the covering that I am wearing, which is none. Um, it's not that metaphorical, but one is more metaphorical than the other. And he's playing a game between um, the literal and the metaphor there. Um, and I think he does that throughout. That is, um, if, he says for some, if he says, for example, um, to enter in these bonds is to be free, then where my hand is set, my seal shall be. Um, on the first reading of it, you might say, you know, he's giving her a kind of beautiful description of his commitment um, that he signed, signed, sealed, and delivered. But then you realize that that beautiful description of his commitment is actually a much more explicit metaphor than you were imagining. Um, and um, so that's another um, play with the interaction of tenor and vehicle. And that's something that Dunn does over and over again. Let's look at A Valediction for Bidding Morning, uh, one of his most beautiful poems.
Um, probably written to his wife when he goes on a long trip. Um, and at least traditionally, that's what it's taken to be. Um, <coughs> what does valediction mean? Goodbye. Yeah. Goodnight. Sorry? Goodbye. It, it's goodbye. That's why people give a valid, valedictor, valedictorians give valedictory addresses. They say goodbye to school, goodbye to you, everyone saying goodbye to each other. Um, it literally means saying vale, which is farewell in Latin. Um, literally, it means be strong. Um, vale means be strong. So a valediction is a saying, be strong, but it's saying be strong as in we have to part, um, farewell. It's almost actually literally farewell, do well in this situation where we part. Um, and he has a few valedictions, but this one is one forbidding mourning. That is, don't mourn over the fact that I'm saying goodbye. Um, <clears throat> someone want to read it? Jesse? As virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, whilst some of their sad friends do say, the breath goes now, and some say no. So let us melt and make no noise, no tear floods nor sigh tempests move, toward profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love. Moving of the earth brings harms and fears, men reckon what it did and meant, but trepidation of the spheres though greater fa far, is innocent. Dull sublunary lovers love whose soul is sense cannot admit absence because it doth remove those things which elemented it. But we, by a love so much refined that ourselves know not what it is, inter-assured of the mind, care less eyes, lips, hands to miss. Our two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go, endure not yet, a breach, but an expansion, like... Uh, but, and... Expansion, in my... Yeah, I know. Is that how you want to pronounce it? Expansion. Yes, Like gold to airy, thinnest beat. If they be two, they are two so, as stiff twin compasses are two. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show, to move <coughs> but doth if the other do. And though it in the center sit... Yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it, and grows erect as that comes home. Such wilt thou be to me, who must, like the other foot, obliquely run. Thy firmness makes my circle just, and makes me end where I begun. Thank you. Um, so how many people knew that poem already? Um, very beautiful, isn't it? <clears throat> Answer, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. God, that's beautiful. Um, okay, so let's just go through it. He's saying goodbye to his wife. Um, and he, gives, he begins with a simile. As virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, um, while some of their sad friends do say the breath goes now, and some say no. So how do virtuous men die? Bye. No, uh, mildly. mildly. They pass away mildly. Um, and some of their friends are saying he stopped breathing. And others say, no, he's still breathing. Um, and <coughs> the virtuous men are whispering to their souls to go. That is telling their souls to go where? To heaven. Yeah. So virtuous men have good deaths, is what he's saying. That is, they don't... Um, 
at least the most reasonable interpretation of this is that they um, are reconciled to their deaths. Um, and um, the most hopeful um, interpretation of this is what we all hope for, which is an easy death. Um, Keats has that line. Um, um, how does it go? Um, for many a time, what is it? Um, something I've been half in love with easeful death called upon him with many a mused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath. Now, more than ever, seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain to thy high requiem become a sod. Um, so full many a time um, I've been half in love with easeful death, um, called upon him with many music rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath. That idea of just dying almost with there being no way for people to see when the transition occurs, um, that's a very ancient hope for how to die. Um, and um, that's what he's imagining here. Um, Browning will have a similar image in Child Roll into the Dark Tower came. Um, that is, uh, that the dying person will um, hear those around him thinking he might be dead now. And his only hope is not to shame such tender love and stay. Um, so virtuous men, they die mildly. That's what we want and whisper to their souls to go. They whisper because the whole point is that it should all be mild, and it's just, okay, go. As virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, while some of their sad friends do say the breath goes now, and some say, no, not yet, in other words. Um, so let us melt. So let's um, melt from each other, melt away, so let us melt and make no noise. So the way virtuous men die mildly, let us melt and make no noise. No tear floods nor sigh tempests move. So no weeping. No, I can't believe you have to go away. I'm so sad. It's awful. But I'll see you Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, but it's, I have to go. But let's do it without mourning. Melting, making no noise. No tear floods nor sigh tempests move. Twere profanation of our joys, we would be profaning our joys, our love, to tell the laity our love. So who are the laity? Again? Yeah. Um, <coughs> remember the layman in To His Mistress Going to Bed? Um, so it would profane what we have together <coughs> if we told everyone Oh, God, I love you so much. I can't believe we're leaving. And everyone is watching them, and they're making a spectacle um, at the departure gate, um, as people do, as you know, right? You've all seen that in the airport. Um, people just kind of boasting how much they love each other by the <laughs> dramatic weeping that they undertake in public. I mean, you know, you can be kind and say, oh, they really love each other. That's nice. Or you can say, yeah, but they also know they're being watched. 
mm-hmm. and that's part of the point. Um, and it's not being that cynical to say that. Um, no, it's not. All right, here's why it's not cynical. Because it's a way for each to tell the other, I don't care about all these people watching us, which you can only do if you actually notice all the people watching you so that you can tell the other person that you don't care. Um, so it's a genuine, or it can be a genuine sign of um, caring and love, even while it's also drama. Um, Encyclopedia Dramatica drama. Um, but he says, no, let us melt and make no noise. Melt there would then mean something like just weep very, very slightly. Melt into the slightest tears, but without noise, no tear floods, nor sigh tempests <coughs> move. Toward profanation of our joys, we would profane what we feel about each other to tell the laity our love. Um, so here again, what poem do you want to compare this to of the ones we read? Yeah, Rachel. Weeping. Yeah. No, yeah, weeping. Okay. Um, but Is this related or am I just no. <laughs> um, no, what weeps in the imperfect enjoyment is not the eyes. <laughs> um, <Okay>. Sorry. <laughs> it's a really, really dirty poem. Which is that poem that talks about the the greatest the greater gift? is to hide it or to keep it? Yeah, um, I have done one greater thing than all the worthies did, but a greater than stuff spring, which is to keep it hid. So yeah, that's exactly right. Um, That is, uh, where is it? Um, It's... um, The Undertaking, yeah. Yeah, The Undertaking. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I have done one braver thing than all the worthies did, which is that I... Um, succeeded in um, having a relationship of love with her and yet a braver than stuff spring which is to keep that hit not to tell anyone it were but madness now to impart the skill of specular stone so it would be crazy to do alchemy which he um, a spectac- uh, specular stone is a mirror stone a stone you could see um, um, your reflection in when he which can have learned the art to cut it can find none um, so if I now could utter this others because no more such stuff to work upon there is would love but as before so there's no point in my describing the love she and I had because it wouldn't help anyone else but he who loveliness within hath found all outward loathes for he who color loves and skin loves but their oldest clothes so here again notice it's the body and the soul if, as I have said, you also do virtue attired in, women, in woman, see, and dare love that, and say so too, and forget the he and she, and if this love, though, place it so from profane men you hide, which will no faith on this bestow, or if they do, deride, that is, they'll deride it, they won't believe it, or they'll deride it. So if you have found a woman, and you do as I do, um, and forget the he and the she, just love her without thinking of um, demonstrating the fact that you're an item, a couple, a he and she, then you have done a braver thing than all the worthies did. And a braver thence will spring, which is to keep that hid. So, yeah, don't boast about it, he's saying in a poem, which he's then distributing to lots of people. (laughs) Um, But here, at least, the poem, so that's another third person, right, the addressee of the undertaking. But here he's addressing her. Um, And... Um, 
with any luck, we'll be able to do this in then one more poem, the canonization. Um, so let us melt and make no mo- noise, no tear floods, nor sly tempests move, to a profanation of our joys to tell the lady our love. Moving of the earth brings harms and fears, that is, people are really afraid of earthquakes. Men reckon what it did and meant. Why was there an earthquake? Why did the earth tremble? He's not talking about earthquakes where, where people die. He's just saying, you know, if you feel a trembler, so think of this as like Boston area earthquakes, not California earthquakes. Um, so if you fear a trembler, you're just wondering, what's up with that? What's going to happen? But trepidation of the spheres, that is, what are the spheres there? Right, the celestial um, spheres, the different um, levels, each with its own intelligence. And trepidation of the spheres is the fact that the planets don't always go in the same direction um, with respect to the swift stars, but I mean the um, fixed stars, right? Everyone knows that. Uh, we talked about it a little bit. Um, actually, I talked about it in the film class, of course. Um, what else would you talk about in the film class? But. Um, there's actually, I just need to say this, there's a beautiful, beautiful um, photo that NASA published yesterday of Earth as the evening star taken by the rover from Mars. So um, you know, or you should know, because it's really, really important to English literature, that um, you only see Venus at the horizon. Do people know that? Um, except during a transit of Venus, which occurs um, twice every 120 years or something. Um, eight years apart, but except for a transit of Venus, which is Venus kind of eclipsing the sun, passing over the disk of the sun, um, the only time you'll see the planet Venus is either um, in the evening, close to the western horizon and setting, or in the morning, close to the eastern horizon and rising. Um, Do people know that about Venus? That's why it's sometimes called the morning star, sometimes called the evening star. Lucifer means bearer of light, and is associated with the morning star, hence Lucifer, son of the morning. morning. Um, light bearer, son of the morning. So the reason for this, does anyone know why we only see the evening star um, on the horizon? Why Venus can only be seen on the horizon, never overhead? Maybe like the movement of its orbit always keeps it in line with the Earth? Well, it's you could, without knowing its orbit, all you would have to know, and what you can figure out from this actually, is that Venus is closer to the sun than we are. So what that means is when we're looking in the direction of Venus, we're also looking pretty much in the direction of the sun. Venus is closer to the sun than we are and has a smaller orbit. So if you look towards Venus, you're looking towards the sun. And so Venus can be overhead at noon, but we can't see it. The sun is also overhead at noon, and so we don't see Venus. But you're looking in the direction of the sun, but not. But Venus is off a bit from the sun, let's say 20 degrees from the sun. Then the sun sets, and then you'll see Venus behind it, not having set yet, but it will set within the next hour because it's pretty near the same direction as the sun from Earth. Or in the morning, it will rise as much as an hour before the sun rises, but then the sun will rise. Yeah. Yes. So long as its orbit is also smaller than ours. Well, if it's closer than we are to the sun, its orbit almost by definition 
Oh yeah, I guess I was figuring, I guess I thought of, like if it's orbit is like maybe a different shape than there are points where it's closer than they are. Yeah, which is true, and that's how comets orbit. That is, comets are sometimes closer than, and sometimes farther away. But in roughly circular orbits, they're not circular, but in roughly circular orbits, like the orbit of the planets, but not Pluto. That's one reason it was demoted um, as a planet. In roughly circular orbits, um, the planets stay in the same order. Um, Pluto and Neptune actually sometimes switch which one is closer to the sun. Um, and um, so from Pluto... If you were on Pluto, you would sometimes see Neptune as the morning or the evening star, but sometimes you might see it right overhead if Neptune's orbit were had gone out past Pluto's. Um, but the reason I mention this is that, first of all, it means the evening star <coughs> always stands for not only English poets but Greek poets, or Venus does, always stands for an ephemeral beauty, a beauty that is not going to last long. Um, and um, either it will, the silent splendor will drop veil by veil amid the chrysolite of sunlight ere it strike the mountaintop, if I can try to put it that way. <laughs> um, or it will get more and more bright <coughs> and beautiful in the evening, but we'll set. <coughs> So Blake has an amazing poem, To the Evening Star, um, <coughs> which is um, a prayer to the evening star to smile on our loves just before it sets. Um, but soon night will come, and things will be scary and terrible. But in the meantime, while we go inside, while we hide from the creatures and damps of the night, smile on our loves, he says to the evening star. It's sometimes called the folding star. Have you ever heard that term? It's the name of a novel actually by Alan Hollingshurst. Um, it's sometimes called the folding star because it's the star that when you see it, you bring the sheep back to their folds. Mm -hmm. So the folding star means it's time to bring the sheep back to their folds, away from the wolves, away from the perils of night. So that's another beautiful phrase, the folding star. Um, one reason it's really important to know this <coughs> is that you won't make the very basic mistake about the intimations ode that um, people made who didn't know this, which is Wordsworth says, um, this, um, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting <coughs> and cometh from afar. And then... At length the man will see it die away and fade into the light of common day. And a lot of people thought that he was talking about the sun itself, that the sun in the morning is really beautiful, the soul that rises with us, our life star, that's the sun at sunrise, but eventually it just becomes the boring sun of midday. But that's not what Wordsworth is saying. He's saying that the sunlight is, that is just coarse to say what Wallace Stevens says about the sunlight, that it's coarse and, um, and brutal, but that there's this other beautiful light that will rise just before sunlight and fade into the sunlight, but it's that other beautiful light that really matters to us. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting, because if you see it as morning star, you won't see it as evening star. That's another thing. That is, you either see it in the morning or in the evening, but never both. Um, at the same time.
on the same day. Um, so this wonderful picture that the rover um, took is from Mars of Earth. And because Mars is, Earth is closer to the sun than Mars, it's a picture of Earth as the evening star from the perspective of Mars. Um, and you can actually see both Earth and the moon in this shot. So Earth and the moon represent the evening star. Yeah, I have the picture here. Oh, do you really? Yeah, do you want me to pass it around? Yeah, isn't it beautiful? Oh, it's very simple, just two white dots. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, you know, imagine taking a picture of Venus. It's only going to come out as a white dot either. <laughs> So, um, but what that means is <coughs> that unlike the other stars, you can always tell the, where the North Star is, right? Everyone knows by following um, one of the edges of the Big Dipper. Um, and if you just follow it um, um, in the direction that it's pointing, the next bright star towards the horizon that it will hit is the North Star. And that's how you... <laughs> it's very tiny, but still, it's the evening star. Earth is the evening star. Guys, you are sitting on the evening star, as of seen Mars. from Mars. <laughs> well, it's wonderful, though. Oh, it is. Yeah. And as seen from, like, Jupiter and Saturn and every other planet. Yeah. But they haven't been seen from those planets, but they have been seen now from Mars. Mm -hmm. um, Tree make a sound if you're not there to hear it. Yeah. Like, yeah. This is the one good thing about being sick. You can have a class where you say these things. Um, otherwise, as you know, I focus like a laser. Uh, <laughs> you know what laser stands for? Just a joke. All right. Um, so. <laughs> I'm not telling you we have to get back to our pond. Um, but the point that Dunn is making, who is also interested in astronomy, um, is that you can always find um, Polaris by finding the Big Dipper, and Polaris will always be in the same relation to the Big Dipper, no matter what. Um, you can always find Arcturus, at least in the summer, um, by following down from the Big Dipper and then finding another constellation and counting stars and so forth. The fixed stars are always in the same place in the sky, which is to say they have the same relationship to each other, hence constellations, constellations, constellations as well, but hence constellations. Um, but the planets don't do that. Um, you can't find a planet because you noticed that it was right by Orion's belt a month ago. If you now say, oh yeah, I know where that planet is, it's right by Orion's belt, it won't be. Um, the planets move every night. We see them in a different place every night. Um, and they also engage in retrograde motion, which is to say that if you watch, if you chart a planet's motion over a year, you'll see it um, going across the fixed stars, but then sometimes it'll turn around and then it'll go across the fixed stars again. So they're called wanderers. And the reason for that is that what'll happen is we'll be going around the sun, and let's say Mars will be going around the sun a little bit faster than us, and so here we'll be looking at Mars to my right, and then as Mars is working around the sun, Mars is whipping up like this, but then we'll make the turn, and Mars will seem to go backwards again even though it's still chasing us, we go around the corner before it does, and it's a smaller corner. 
Um, so this is basically how people figured out, how Galileo and Copernicus figured out that Earth was not the center of the solar system um, because it was much easier to describe the motion of heavenly bodies if you assume that there were um, that there was a center that we were going around as well as Venus, as well as Mars, as well as Jupiter and Saturn and Neptune. Um, and that explained all the motion. And Dunn was fascinated by this. So it's not, oh yeah, I have a captive audience, I'm going to teach you some astronomy, god damn it. It's what? rather um, that you actually, astronomy was fascinating to a lot of poets. Um, not really deep astronomy, that is they don't want to go beyond what I've just told you, most of them, <laughs> but they do want to go as far as I've told you. Dunn actually wanted to go way beyond this, and Milton and Shakespeare actually did also. Um, Puck in A Midsummer Night's Dream has a great line, I'll put a girdle round about the earth in 40 minutes. There's girdle again. Um, that is Oberon sends him to get the flower that will be the love juice to put in um, the eyes of um, Demetrius, and he tells Puck where to get it, and Puck says, okay, I'll put a girdle round about the earth in 40 minutes. And what he means by that is, I will go halfway round the earth, grab it, and come back, um, and I'll be halfway around the earth in 40 minutes. It'll take me 40 minutes to go where you're sending me, um, halfway around the earth. Um, a friend of Shakespeare's had figured out that wrongly, because he thought the earth was about 10%, um, he thought its diameter was 10% less than it actually is, but he figured out that um, if you orbited the earth, the orbit would take 80 minutes. And um, in fact, orbits around the Earth take 90 minutes. Um, and he got it wrong by 10 minutes. But Shakespeare knew this. So Shakespeare knew that, um, or thought he knew, that going around the Earth, the fastest you could go around the Earth without shooting out into space was it would take you 40 minutes to go halfway around. And so he has Puck say that. Um, yes, exactly. It's not just, oh, yeah, I'll be back in 40 minutes. <laughs> um, it's like there's a reason he said 40 minutes, and for some people in the audience, they would know it. Um, so, you know, I think these are things worth um, just seeing the beautiful resonances. Everyone loves the sky, and everyone loves seeing planets and stars. And people like Dunn and Shakespeare and Wordsworth and Shelley <coughs> knew enough to describe what they were seeing, both accurately but also beautifully at the same time. And um, it's a lovely thing, I think. Um, so let's just go a little farther. We have a couple minutes. So um, moving of the earth brings harms and fears. <coughs> Excuse me. Men reckoned what it did and meant. But trepidation of the spheres, though greater far, is innocent. It's just the movement of astronomical bodies. Dull, sublunary lovers love. So what does sublunary mean? Anyone know? Below what? Yes. So the word sublunary means on our earth. Um, and you can use that word pretty much in <coughs> any context to talk about the real world. Um, sublunary means I'm talking about the real world and not your la-di-da world up in the heavens. Um, so sublunary means um, experience under the sphere of the moon. The moon has the first sphere. Um, so dull sublunary lovers love whose soul is sense. That is, they think love is all about sex cannot admit absence. So you're supposed to hear the pun in sense and ab 
sense. Not the same word, but the pun. They can, they like sense, they therefore don't like absence. And they cannot admit absence because it doth remove those things which elemented it. That is, love was the elements put together when the two, when the couple is together, there are two elements forming um, love. But we are different. But we, <coughs> by a love so much refined that ourselves know not what it is, interassured of the mind, care less eyes, lips, and hands to mess. So since we know each other's minds, we can live without each other's physical presence. We're so refined by love that we don't even know what this refinement is, but it's so pure that we're not worried about whether you're going to license my hands to go above, between, what is it, above, behind, before, between, below. Um, our two souls, therefore, which are one, so that's like the ecstasy, our two souls are one. Though I must go, endure not yet <coughs> a breach, we're not splitting from each other, but an expansion, like gold to airy thinness beat. So you probably know that gold can be made incredibly thin. Um, that's what gold leaf is. Um, and um, people who beat gold, goldsmiths who beat gold to incredible thinness, the gold can like float down like um, gossamer. And that's actually how they cover things with gold, is they beat the gold to be very, very thin. And then they hold it up and they let it float over the thing they want to cover with gold. And it just floats down because gold can be um, made basically as thin as you want, down to one or two molecules, although Dunn didn't know this, but down to one or two molecules thick. That's why you can cover the state house with gold. Um, the amount of gold on top of the state house, that's real gold on top of the state house on Beacon Hill. Um, but it's so thin that it's actually not like, oh my God, one million dollars. Um, it's really, really thin. <coughs> and he loves that view that, yeah, we're together like, we're always together no matter how far apart we are, like gold to airy thinness. Okay, we'll pick up here on Tuesday. We'll do songs and sonnets next week, and then we will proceed after vacation to other stuff.